It's time for the Chip Race. Hello and welcome to the Chip Race, sponsored by Unibet Poker. I'm your host, David Lappin, alongside Darrow Carney. We've still got our eye on the World Series of Poker. With the main event final table in our sights, who better to have as our headliner but one of last year's November Niners, the man who incredibly ran deep again, coming 64th this year, Belgian superstar Kenny Hallert. We also chat to British WSOP reporter Will Schilliber, who gives us the inside track on this year's series. Ian will bring us up to date on the news from Vegas and closer to home. And Dara will analyse a fascinating and crucial hand from last year's main event final table between our guest Kenny Hallert and Michael Ruan, who just narrowly missed out on back-to-back final tables. But first... Chris Ferguson being the 2017 World Series of Poker Player of the Year is an absolute disaster for the poker industry. It makes a mockery of us as a sport, game, whatever you want to call it. So that's why I have really strong opinions about it. That said, I understand how difficult it is for any company to make a moral judgment on whether or not somebody should or shouldn't play. However, the World Series of Poker does retain that right to turn people away if they don't feel like they deserve a seat at their table. And in this instance, with Ferguson's silence, I don't believe we can provide him with forgiveness until he breaks our silence. Until he breaks our silence, I don't think he deserves a seat at the table. I think everybody who thought that he was a great man, I think his return to the game without explaining himself shows to me that he isn't a great man and that he has some real issues with values missing here. Uh, And yeah, tough decision for the World Series of Poker because they don't want to be the moral police. They've told me that, but I think they should make an exception in real serious cases such as this one, Russ Russ Hamilton, or anything else that, that comes up in the future which crosses the territory about what is right or wrong with this industry. Very difficult, I know, when Benny Binion, who created the World Series of Poker himself, was a murderer. There you go. Okay, well, first of all, Dara, I have you here. Um, you know, it's pretty clear that the World Series Player of the Year is going to be contended by Chris Ferguson. Chris, obviously, um, you know, pretty infamous in the industry these days. One of the reasons Black Friday occurred, certainly the reason it occurred in terms of its blackness for a lot of players not getting their money, 45,000 Americans not getting paid out with the um, with the money they had on deposit. He's not a popular guy, you know, it's certainly true that whenever he's played poker or made final tables, there's loud boos when he's playing. People are not keen to see him win a pot. But now that we're in this kind of weird spot now where it is likely that he is going to do so well, it's really brought this question to the fore. And I read a piece, I know you read it too, by Lee Davy there last week. That was Lee's voice you heard at the top providing some cliffs for us of that article. The thrust of it being that Chris shouldn't be allowed to participate at the World Series at all. He certainly has a strong opinion on this one. Dara, what's your take on it? Like you mentioned there that he's unpopular, and I don't think that that's completely true. I'm, I've seen him walk around the Rio quite a lot, and he's certainly not somebody who's in hiding as if he's unpopular. In fact, uh, lots of people are stopping him for selfies, and he's wearing exactly the same clothes he wore back when he was a celebrity. Um, so he's very recognizable, and people are looking for selfies with him. Um, and so he seems to have a lot of popularity still among, I guess, 
an older generation of players, let's say, who maybe don't know too much about the ins and outs of full tilt and and even if they do don't particularly care because they're not online players and they kind of feel well you know online that's a different world anyway sure yeah for those of you out there who might be from that older live generation or for that matter new to the game black friday was april 15 2011 when the united states department of justice enforced the uiga or unlawful internet gambling enforcement act uh, unsealing an indictment against top executives of poker stars, Absolute Poker and Full Tilt Poker, which Chris Ferguson had founded with Howard Letter and Ray Batar in 2004. When the companies were forced to leave the US market, player balances had to be paid out and it was discovered that Full Tilt had not segregated player funds from their own money and didn't have enough money to pay uh, the player back their deposits. Now, players did eventually get their money back after the sale of the company Poker Stars, but for many, they were at the back of a long queue, Dara, and even uh, it took up until last year, I think, for some of the funds to be returned. I actually stood in a line in the bat in one of the bathrooms, like one of the breaks, right behind him, and you know he there was no attempt to hide himself or anything. Um, and I remember actually tweeting it the first time that it wasn't the first time he kept me waiting while stuff waiting while stuff got flushed down in the toilet, <laughs> which I think is how a lot of online players feel. But outside of that, um, you know, he's still very popular. He's clearly chasing the player of the year. I mean, he's running around, entering every tournament, entering all the re-entries as often as he can. Um, so he, he's, it's not as if he's trying to deflect attention from himself. He's, he's actually chasing this uh, very, very hard, probably harder than any other player, except maybe Daniel Agranu. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a weird one. It's, it's, it's almost as if people have moved on for the most part, but then some people obviously who are very much affected uh, feel a bit aggrieved by the whole thing. In a sense, I can kind of understand why he's back, um, but it's just the shamelessness of it that kind of gets to me. The fact that he's, you know, he's never at any stage made an apology or any sort of um, expression of regret even. Yeah, well, you, you are getting to kind of the nub of the problem, I think, and it's certainly the, the, the point that Lee makes in his article is that, and, and, and look, I have a certain amount of sympathy is the wrong word, but, you know, of the pariahs in Full Tilt and everything that took place there, I do feel like he's a more sympathetic figure amongst all of those guys. Now, at the same time, you know, Lederer, at least he had the balls to come out and, like, you know, say the terrible things that he'd done and, like, explain himself a little bit in those letterer files. You know, Chris has pretty much kept radio silence. But, you know, a lot of the decision-making, look, it was a very complicated uh, situation. Um, I know for a fact from the inside that at numerous meetings where there was, like, divisions of profit shares in that company in the years leading up to Black Friday, Chris was the one dissenting voice telling the other shareholders, leave your money in the company. We need to have bigger balances. We need to have money for the future for promotions. You can't keep doing these, like, um, you know, profit takes. Now, that would you would think would mean he was showing some cognizance of what could happen in a worst case scenario. He was trying to protect the players in some way. But then again, and the flip side is fair, you know, he didn't ultimately do that in the end. He didn't succeed in getting them to not take the money. The money wasn't there when the players needed it after Black Friday uh, had meant that, you know, all the sites had to just give the money back to the US players they should have. And in the end, uh, his radio signs, I think, is what bugs people the most. Yeah, I mean, I, we've heard various things from people on the inside, and we we don't know whether it's true or not. I mean, even if we accept the sort of like popular view that Bitar was the biggest villain, and then Leder, um, and then Ferguson had a lower level of guilt. I mean, Ferguson has never come out and you know made these points about what he was saying in, in the run up to Black Friday, and I mean, 
if he was aware that it was a really bad idea for them to go on taking out money, I mean, he needed to do more than just say, oh, I think it's a bad idea. I mean, he needed to really like kick up a fuss and, and, and try and stop it. And I don't get the sense that he ever did that. Um, and I also don't get the sense that since Black Friday, he's, he's, he's actually taken on any sort of, um, you know, guilt or, or mea culpa. Letter at least has come out and made a very ham-fisted attempt to 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 um, explain what happened and accept responsibility for his part of it. As far as I know, um, Ferguson hasn't done that at all. Now maybe he's been advised by his, his lawyers not to not to accept guilt because that would leave him open to to lawsuit. But at the same time, I mean, it's a bit rich for a guy who was central to the whole thing to just come back as if nothing happened. Um, and I, I, I like also if we accept the view that Batar was the real villain in this piece. As far as I understand, uh, Ferguson was central to bringing Batar in in the first place, and several of the other pros actually expressed doubts about Batar's um, ability to, to 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 run full tilt. So at the very least, he should he should come out and say he made a mistake there. Well, that's certainly true, Dar. I think you know I, if Chris did anything really really bad, it was probably employing him. I think he might have been his financial advisor, his personal financial advisor. He brought him into the fold in full tilt, and and I think Pitar's decision making was probably the most criminal stuff they did. One hundred percent. Having said that, though, the World Series of Poker is a different brand. It's it's not full tilt. It's not you know I know it's still the world of poker as we sort of see it in this diffuse way, but. You know, who's to say that, you know, Harris or Entertainment or Caesars or whoever have the right to turn to him who's done nothing uh, wrong to them specifically, he hasn't broken any tournament rules to be disqualified, he hasn't got himself kicked out of the casino for any reason. How have they the right to say, you know, uh, your money's not welcome here? Well, I think they've done it in other cases, in, in other online scandals, like the Ultimate Bet scandal. Some of the people have been prevented from coming back. Um, I'm not sure I see how this is different. I mean, while it's not their brand, if somebody has done something wrong, uh, you know, they, they do have the right to say, well, we, we don't think this is a moral person. There are guys who have been banned in casinos in, in um, Europe, for example, who've also been banned from the WSOP as a result, even though they haven't, it, it has no direct relation to the WSOP. I also feel that, like, the, the, the real problem about this is, like, whatever about the legal situation, there, there just seems to be no uh, regret or uh, feeling of guilt. Um, I think that one of the first people to confront him when he came back a couple of years ago was my uh, housemate for the summer, Andrew Brokus. And when Andrew brought the matter up at the table, um, and again, this kind of showed how, let's say, ordinary non-online poker fans had a different view. Uh, it started with somebody saying, oh, it's great to see you back, Chris. Um, and then Andrew said, you know, I disagree with that. Um, and from what I remember, Chris's response was just kind of like, well, you know, you guys got your money back in the end, so what's the big deal? Um, as if nothing had happened. It feels like he's trying to sweep the whole thing under the carpet as, as, as not a major issue, just because, you know, poker stars eventually bailed, bailed out full tilt and people got their money back. Sure. Well, look, I, I don't know how it's going to come out. Obviously, you know, Chris is one of the bookies' favourites to pick up the 2017 World Series Player of the Year award. Um, you know, he, he's still got a whole World Series of Poker Europe to mill through to see if uh, that comes out in the wash. But if he does, if he is the, the winner of this prestigious title, uh, you know, they're going to put a banner up of him. You know, he's going to get an opportunity to speak. Do you think he might use that finally to break the silence? I don't think so. He would have by now, surely, if he was going to. 
No, I don't think he will. And you mentioned he, he'll come over to you for the WSOP because he is clearly very chasing very strongly this Player of the Year thing. Uh, he's entered, he's entering all the right tournaments to get the points and re-entering them multiple times and and, and using every trick in the book uh, to to try and maximise his chances of winning this. So he clearly will come over to WSOP Europe. But it'll be interesting to see if he gets the same reaction in Europe, where online poker is still very much a bigger thing than, than the US and people maybe have um, more awareness of, of the issues surrounding Ferguson. He might get a very hostile reception in Rosvedov when he does come. Um, it's going to be interesting to see. Um, the other thing is because of the way the player of the year has been changed this year to essentially just like who cashes the most small buy-in tournaments with big fields, Chris has been prioritizing all of these and he's been like firing multiple bullets. Um, to the point that even in, in in one of them, where when the reg line was closed and people were told, okay, anybody who's in, in line now gets into the tournament, uh, Chris actually came out of the line and went to the back of the line to make sure that he would be the last person into the tournament and therefore <laughs> maximizes his chance of picking up some player of the year points with his four big blinds or whatever he was getting. So that's what you mean by every trick in the book? Yeah, literally every trick in the book. And, you know, he's been avoiding the tournaments that, 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 that don't count for as much. Um, uh, another interesting question is like if he does win the pair of the year first of all there's no onus or no requirement on the WSOP to put up a picture of him they have in the past for example uh, you don't see Amarillo Slim anymore for for, 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 for different reasons they, you know, they, they, they do have the right not to put up a picture if they don't want to so they, they might choose not to but if they do the question which Doug Pope posed is like which picture goes up because normally in every other year, as far as I'm aware, the player of the year has won a bracelet at some point. Um, and our friend, uh, George Danzer, who won it in 2014, you know, there's a picture of him holding his bracelet. Yeah. Ferguson hasn't won a bracelet this year. Um, so what picture are they going to use? Um, when Doug uh, posed this question on um, Twitter, Jason Les came in and said, yeah, well, if, he, if, if they don't have a picture of getting a bracelet, at least they'll have a picture of him in line for his sixth bullet at the Giant. <laughs> Well, let's leave it on that note. At least we can find some humour in what I guess is an issue that's causing some people some concern, some people a lot of anger. Um, and, and also just, you know, asks the question, you know, should the World Series of Poker be the moral guardian of poker, the moral police? Uh, I think this uh, conversation is going to run and run, to be honest. In fact, later in the show, we speak to Will Schillerber. I'd love to ask him that and, and you know, maybe a few of our future guests, too. For those of you who'd like to read Lee's excellently penned article, you can check it out on calvinair.com. We're joined now by WSOP live reporter, Backdoor Quads editor and poker writing freelancer Will Schillerber. Will, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Delighted to have you. Uh, For my first question, I want to hand straight over to my co-host, who I know is just itching to ask you something. I'm interested to know how you got into blogging. Was it similar to Mark Convy, where you just realised you were never going to make it as a player? (laughs) Um, it's the question I get asked the most especially by people who I I say I'm a poker journalist and they say either two questions one oh you must be a very good bluffer or you must have a very good poker face and two is do you know Dan Bilzerian Um, but on the the most part when I started um, at university uh, many moons ago now, it feels a long time ago considering I'm now out of studying, um, I joined two societies. I joined um, the radio because I always felt that student radio was was one of those things that I felt like I wanted to get into. I felt like I'd be quite good at it. Uh, And I joined the Poker Society because 
I'd spent the last maybe two years playing um, free online Facebook poker, um, not being very good, liking the game, and first week with some new housemates was like, yeah, go on, I'll, I'll give that a try. So it was just two pound, nine man sit and goes, and you know, it's the, it's the price of a beer, or, or, or better if you win, and um, I basically fell in love with the game properly then. Um, and then a few months later, I was uh, having a talk with someone from some journalistic background, and they said that the most important thing you want to do uh, if you want to become a journalist is have a portfolio of writing, not just to want to write, but to show that you can write and that you have written. And I thought to myself, well, I, I could write about football or, or the Premier League, but let's face it, who, who's going to read that? No one's going to read it. And even if you write the best stuff, it's going to be written in a very similar way on some of the big sites. So I'd started watching EPTs and the live streams and devouring any and all poker content on off of YouTube, Poker After Dark, the World Series, the Cash Game, anything. Um, so I ended up writing about that, and that led me to go to EPT Barcelona in 2014, just as a bit of a jolly, um, just to go along and, and and soak it up. And I remember taking selfies with Martin Finger, Ola Shemian, railing the final table and, and to this day I, I can probably name everyone on that final table because that was my start in, in live poker and while I was there I met the aforementioned Mark Convey and he that was my first ever field walk where he walked me through the field and was like oh this is so and so this is so and so this is so and so um, and that was a very special moment for me because it was like seeing all these players and Mark is very well respected by players and media and staff and dealers. So seeing... I remember seeing, when that used to be the case, yeah. <laughs> seeing the respect that he got from players or the recognition that he got, um, even just walking through the field was something that I felt was really... something that I would want to earn from the players. And I've done this now for coming on two years, just over two years properly. And I'm nowhere near the respect Mark's get, but I'm... I definitely understand the feeling that that players get when they see the media walking through the field. Yeah, I think I, th I think you've done very well in establishing yourself pretty quickly because I think not only do you know all the players, but you you even know, as far as I can see, like the sort of interlinkages. One of my first memories of you, I think, was at um, EPT or UK IPT Dublin, and I was looking for David, who was still in the tournament, and I was walking around, and you said to me, "Oh, he's over there in the corner." So you you immediately knew that who I was looking for, and I had no idea who you were at the time. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I just thought, "Who's this tall English guy who knows that I'm looking for David Lapham?" How sad is it that it was assumed that you only had one friend? Yeah, well, that's the other thing. Yeah, well, I, or, or maybe it was known that you only had one friend. <laughs> okay, touche. Um, but yeah, like how how like how do you basically get that kind of knowledge? Um, I am always on social media. It, it must be an 18 to 25 year old thing to just be living on social media. Um, <laughs> and, and coming to, coming to the world series, you get exposed to, uh, the best and the worst of, of poker Twitter. And it, it really is great to, you know, have your finger on, on the pulse of, of, what's happening and you certainly are in the world series is is what everyone's talking about and that's that's where you're applying your trade at the moment i know you celebrate a job well done uh at this year's series with some well-earned hot tub beers last night 
your job gives you access and a real sense of the series, I guess, as a whole. Uh, do you think it's been a success? Yeah, I feel like it was relatively successful. Um, the social media reaction to Poker News doing the updates was muted. There are always players unhappy because we misreport a hand, miss some key action, and, and some of those are going to be more high profile than others, depending on the event, the profile of the player, the magnitude of the hand and basically who's reading the updates but that's unavoidable obviously we try to minimize it but you know you you might miss a bet a bet might have been pulled into the middle um i'm trying to think of mistakes that i've made this summer and and uh, misspelling names the most common one and i think i think this is the one that looking back on i think people might laugh a little bit about is there were multiple occasions where Maria Ho was put down as Mario Ho um, and unfortunately like I said depending on the magnitude of the player and how big they are is how noticeable they are Maria unfortunately noticed on multiple occasions <laughs> in terms of the overall series um, the success of the series it's it seems like it's been kind of a mixed bag in the sense that I think the, I, I, I was told by somebody who should know that the numbers for most of the events um, were down 10% on last year and in some cases worse, the, the ladies I think was down about 30% on last year. So there was actually kind of an air of gloom um, about this series and then the main event started and it's the third biggest main event field ever, um, biggest in five years. Do you have any idea why that is? I mean, some of the theories being shown about her, for example, that the with the number of smaller buy-in tournaments, they're kind of self-cannibalizing each other now, um, and they don't have the same kind of appeal, and maybe that the rest of the schedule is a little bit samey. Um, is that your feeling, or do you think it's something else? I feel like the structure is, is big. I wouldn't say too big. It's, it's big enough to fill seven weeks of the summer. There's a lot of variation. From my point of view, at least, this year I was working on a lot different events than last year. Last year was my first series, so I was working events like the 1K Turbo, the 1K Bounty, the Millie Maker, the Colossus, smaller, predominantly no-limit tournaments, big field days, you know, getting to know the people who play, who go to the World Series and are no-limit regs and look to take down a bracelet in one of those events. This year I know more of the games, I know more of the names um, and I worked a lot more maybe high profile not the highest profile but more high profiles more 10ks more final tables um, more events where the faces are the same all year round I mean if I hear Daniel Negreanu talk about the pros and cons of the player of the year race which I'm assuming we're going to come on to uh, if I hear him talk about it once more I'll, I'll go insane it seemed every every tournament that he was in uh, a, he had a man following him around to do the uh, to do his blog, yeah. uh, to his vlog, and uh, B, he was moaning to anyone who will give him the time of day about about the World Series Player of the Year. Um, as for self cannibalizing and and the numbers being sort of a mixed bag, a series is always judged on the size of its main event. I, I think that is something that maybe the World Series will be slightly relieved that it is a, a bumper main event. And that will hide maybe some of the 10K numbers being down. 
I want you to prepare yourself for a, a loud scream. Uh, a lot has been made of the Player of the Year point system um, uh, this year. Uh, for me, the definitive take on this is Ike Axton's one where he more or less said, it's a promotion by a company to encourage players to play more games that will thus benefit the company, or words to that effect. Is that too cynical a position? You know, the Player of the Year has a bit of prestige to it. Have you any strong views on, on what they've done with the formula one way or the other? About about two-thirds of the way through the series, I, I was looking at the Player of the Year, and this was after hearing Negranu moan about it and complain about it to anyone who will give him the time of day in, in any of the 10Ks he was playing. Um, and I looked at the top 10, and I said to one of my colleagues, you know, the order might not be right, or you might have questions and, and issues with the order of the players for what they've achieved, but um, they're all players that you would expect to be you know, up there. My, my view on this is kind of like the, the player of the year standings used to be too much skewed towards the sort of big buy-in tournaments, which were obviously not open to most players. And, you know, the, the players, that level of player, let's say, who could play all those fields, reached a certain sort of level of entitlement where they thought that, well, obviously one of them had to be the best players. This year, it's definitely swung right the other way, where, where we have like all these guys firing multiple bullets and all the re-entries. And I think the number of re-entries that they've introduced has also kind of opened the system to abuse, let's say. Um, I was playing the little one drop on the last day one, and I was just in front of the late rich table, and every time I looked around, there was Negrano and his blog cameraman handing, ha- handing in his latest entry, going off to some table, shoving all in blind, walking out the other door to queue again. Um, and he claimed it was all in the name of charity, but you know, if you if if you want to make a charitable donation, make a charitable donation. I I I felt he was blatantly uh, chasing player of the year points. I think the, the the interesting question is if you're not happy with who's winning player of the year now, who do we think wins player of the year? Now, early on, it was very clearly it was going to be David Buck, um, and as the series grew on, and there was no Mercia-esque crushing streak. Who who else would you put at the top and quite sit there and say, pick twelve random poker players from all different main event uh, from all different buy-ins? Would they all be happy with one person? No. Last year, someone would. So that's I think that's another issue that has been brought up by the player of the year this year. There is no one who's had an an outstanding summer. One name prominent on the leaderboards, uh, who we've touched on before, has got many in the poker world upset. That name, of course, is Chris Ferguson. We talked a little at the top of the show about whether he should be allowed to, part- to participate in the series. I know you covered his epic heads-up um, in the 10K stud last week. What are your opinions on Chris and his participation in the series? I am 22 years old, and I didn't get into poker until 20. 12, 13, and properly into the industry until 14, 15. Um, last, year, last year, I was working on an event, and I was stood behind the three-seat, and the three-seat was empty. And we were always told, told not to stand behind a player. We were always told to stand either behind the dealer or behind an empty chair, just so that they feel like, comfortable. Um, and I remember seeing this sort of shadowy figure in my like, peripheral vision, and so, naturally, being, being ever the gentleman, I pulled out the chair because I could see he had a rack and he was going to come into the same. And it was Howard Lederer. And so the entire table looked up at me like I'm Howard Lederer's servant boy pulling out the chair for the re- return, of, return of the most, uh, most loathed poker... Anyway, so back to Ferguson. 
I have no strong feelings on the man. Last year there was a lot of a lot of vitriol, and especially um, Daniel uh, and is it Daniel Anderson, D Moon Girl? Yeah, D Moon. Yeah, there was a lot of a lot of anger, especially from D Moon Girl, sat in the main event, and he refused to do interviews. And I had a, a chat with him outside once on a break, basically saying that you know I never thought I would see him in the flesh. There's there's a very small list last year of players that I'd never seen in the flesh that I saw at the World Series. He was one of them. Um, and so I have a very neutral standpoint on the man. I understand completely. You can't be in this industry and not understand the absolute hatred of the man for what he has done to the poker community and the, the, the online ecosystem. Um, but it's very hard for me to get anywhere near the level of, of hatred as far as should he be allowed to play in the World Series, yes, I, I honestly think he should. I think that's it's not he hasn't done anything against Caesars to eighty six him, so why should they? Yeah, that's that's my point of view on on Ferguson, which is not it's quite a unique one. I, I think I have quite a unique standpoint on on poker coming in this side of Black Friday, this side of, of the poker boom. And finally, Will, uh, I was wondering what the future holds for your good self. Uh, do you see it in poker? What other areas would you like to write about? Uh, I know you studied and speak fluent German. Would you like to incorporate that into a future career? Live reporting, I, I know, is just, it's it's a very, very good way of getting information from, uh, information that will be very useful in the future. From this industry, um, I know that I'm at the beginning of it. I know that I know people who are a little further ahead, and I, I've seen where they've gone on. Um, the first tournament I ever worked for Poker News was the Grand Final in 2015, and uh, I was working alongside uh, Chad Holloway. I shadowed him on my first day. He's gone on to be the media director for the the Mid States Poker Tour. Um, I worked alongside Frank, who is now my my boss. He's the live reporting manager for Poker News. Um, I was reporting to Donny. Donny Peters was the first guy who ever gave me a gig. He's now working in marketing for the WPT. Remco, you know, Remco has moved on to, to Poker Central. I mean, you see all these people who move on, and that's in the two years that I've been in the industry, uh, and I've, I've, I've barely got my feet wet. So uh, I'm excited to see what happens, but... As for have I made up my mind of where I want to go, not at all. <laughs> Good stuff. Ah. Well, look, I, any tournament is lucky to have you at us. And as a, a live reporter, uh, I can I can certainly say that firsthand. And I'm sure Dara would say something similar. Yeah, although he didn't give me any coverage all the summer. so. so. <laughs> well, maybe well, maybe he can up his game on that front and, you know, in the future. I wasn't working any No Limit. Last, last year, I... Uh, I worked day one B of the little one for one drop, and Dara's name was my first, first in my uh, in my notepad of, of quote notables in the field. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, to be fair, I busted most of my tournaments before you could actually make the long walk in the press room. There's no <laughs> so. Next year, you need to be jumping in the the ten k PLOA and the ten k study, and I'll, I'll give you a bit more time of day. Well, listen, Willie, thank you so much for joining us on the chip race today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's time for Ian Simpson with the news. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the news. 
Everyone has their eye on the World Series of Poker main event final table this week, and with $8 million up top, it's easy to see why. All of the nine remaining players are guaranteed at least a million for their monumental efforts to reach the final table so far. So let's have a look at some of the final table lists here. Most notable, I think, has got to be John Hesp. Now, John has $2,207 in live earnings, with his biggest live score coming from winning his local £10 rebuy at the Napoleon's Casino and Restaurant in Hull. So to add at least a million dollars to his lifetime earnings is monumental, and he's currently second in chips with $85 million. We've got another Brit, Jack Sinclair, on the final table. Relatively inexperienced, he's got about $13,500 in caches. All three of those caches have been this year, uh, he got a cash at the Party Poker Millions, and he's cashed in two World Series events this summer. We also have two third-place finishers of previous main event final tables. Antoine Sout made the final table in 2009, that was the year Joe Carter won, and Ben Lam came third in for $4 million in 2011, uh, and Ben Lam, not forgetting, also has a $10,000 buy-in Omaha bracelet to add to his list of accolades. David Lappin, who do you think is going to win this year's World Series of Poker main event? Well, you know, it, it's not the star-studded sort of fields we've maybe been treated to in the last couple of years, but there are some serious players still in there. Ben Lam, obviously, uh, probably the one with the um, the most amount of pedigree, if you like. Uh, Brian Piccioli as well, uh, US player, uh, online beast in his day. Um, also, certainly in with a decent shot there. He's got 33 million two big blinds heading into the final table uh, but but I totally agree with you um, you know the story is these two relatively inexperienced Brits Jack Sinclair uh, who actually was a uh, chip leader for a lot of yesterday but like you mentioned John Hesp I saw the interview his wife let him go out and play this tournament even though he normally plays a 10 quid game in Hull he said it was on his bucket list as something he wanted to do he's been wearing this cool hat and really really trendy different sort of multicolored uh, waistcoats and whatnot every day at the table he looks like he's just having a ball yeah I love the guy I've seen one interview him and I just love him he seems like such a lovely soft mannered bloke and for him to win at least one million it's just absolutely brilliant well, in this day and age of PO solvers and, you know, all the beasts and everybody saying that, the, you know, the game is now reaching these, you know, zeniths we've never seen before with uh, mathematically minded game theory optimal players. We're seeing these relatively inexperienced guys make these deep runs. It's just it's the magic of the World Series of Poker. It's the magic of that event that even over a six, seven, eight day trial and marathon, these guys can somehow get through the field. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's three guys who have less than $20,000 in earnings. That's crazy. And they're up against some of the best in the world. You've got Ben Lam with $7 million in earnings. You've got Antoine Sout with $5.5 million in earnings. They're up against some of the absolute best. And that's exactly what poker's all about. And Patrick Leonard, another amazing result from the Brit. Uh, he has been absolutely crushing. He's from up your part of uh, Britain, as far as I know. He is indeed. He's from the Northeast, just like me. Well, Patrick took down two Aria high rollers back-to-back -back nights for, like, I think maybe yeah. 400k apiece. So Patrick beasting it up, uh, finishing off his Vegas in style. Not a bad way to end the summer. Most of us do our absolute bollocks in Vegas. I think about 90% of those poor guys. So, if all this World Series of Poker talk has got you hungry for some poker in the gambling capital of the world, Unibet has just announced its 10th anniversary tournament will take place at the win during its Fall Classic. Now, the satellites every Wednesday and every Sunday to win a 3,000 euro package. 
The buy-in for the target event is $1,100. The rest of the package value uh, goes towards four nights at the win, breakfast and dinner during the event, the event, and access to one of our epic players' parties. Those satellites are going to be really popular, I feel, over the next little while. Look, before I let you go, Ian, uh, quick question. Who's going to win the main event? John Hesp. Really? You think so? The romantic in you? Yep. Oh, I would love to see that. It would be so good for the game of poker, I believe, if, if he did take it down. He, he said this one lovely thing, actually, before I go, I have to say, in his interview. He said that he doesn't really know what he's doing, so he doesn't think anyone else knows what he's doing. <laughs> Uh, you know that his ranges, his three bets, his four bets, or whatever. He's like, I don't know why I'm doing it. So they definitely don't know why. It's gonna happen, man. It's gonna happen. <laughs> Great stuff. Listen, we'll see you next week, Eni. Excellent, excellent. Thanks, man. Take care. For our strategy section this week, uh, I thought it was very appropriate to take a look at possibly one of the most famous hands by Kenny Hallert, who is, of course, our guest uh, in the show. Kenny played uh, November nine. Uh, of the World Series in 2016. He's obviously had a, a ton of great results since then, but there was one key hand at the World Series main event final table against Michael Ruan, which has, you know, been talked about an awful lot. And and I guess uh, over the last maybe few weeks, Dara, our strategy guru here, um, has had an opportunity to really get into the weeds of this hand and do a long-form analysis. Dara, there was a hand where Michael Ruan uh, opened King Jack off suit and Kenny Hallert uh, called, I think, from the cutoff with pocket sixes. Both blinds folded. Can you take us from there? Sure, yeah. It was quite an interesting hand early on on the final table of the November 9, as you mentioned. The the two guys were pretty deep stacked at that stage. Michael started the hand with 33.5 million, which is roughly 56 big blinds. And Kenny had a bit more. He had 37.7 million, so he had 63 big blinds, roughly. So they're relatively deep. Um, I say it's a factor, obviously, because we're early on uh, on a big final table, but also um, there's an ante, so you don't want to be just like sitting and not playing your hands. So when it's folded around to Michael in mid position and he looks down at King Jack, um, I think it's a reasonably standard open. It might be one of the weakest hands he, he opens. He, he probably doesn't open Queen Jack off, but King Jack off um, seems like it's strong enough to open. Uh, he opens to 1.4 million, which is uh, a bit over two big blinds, 2.3 big blinds roughly. Kenny uh, is in position uh, in the cutoff, um, and he calls with pocket sixes. Um, and again, I think if you think about that type of hands that Kenny's going to play from the seat, like he's not going to be, be super wide, but and he's going to have some very strong hands that he'll three bet, uh, like you know, aces kings, ace king, those types of hands. Um, and then he'll have some three bet bluffs as well, maybe weak suited aces or whatever. And then he'll have a lot of sort of hands like sixes that are sort of medium strength hands that he'll just call and and play in position. Makes sense. Um, yeah. So Kenny calls and the everybody else folds. So it's two way to the flop. So the flop came queen ten ten rainbow, <clears throat> uh, which is a pretty difficult flop to to, to to hit. It has to be said. Obviously, both players can have queens in their range, and and they have tens in their range. But the fact that there are two tens on the board makes it less likely. So you know, this 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 flop doesn't hit a massive amount of hands, and yet there are quite a few hands that have some sort of equity on this um, flop. Like you know, King Jack is open ended, Jack Nine is open ended, lots of gut shots. Um, so it's a pretty good flop for Michael to stab at uh, as the pre-flop aggressor, uh, which he does. He 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 basically led out on the flop. Um, with his open ender, probably hoping that Kenny just folds now and he wins the pot with King High, uh, which would be a good result. But at the same time, it's not a disaster for him if he gets called either, because he probably has a lot of outs. 
Um, so yeah, he, he he bets and Kenny calls. Now, before we go on, what do you think of Kenny's call there with pocket sixes? As you say, there's a lot of runouts where Kenny can't really take the heat. Is this a call once and get sticky scenario using the fact that by calling, your opponent's probably disinclined to, to barrel the turn unless he has a 10? Yeah, I think I think because it's a difficult flop to hit, like it's it's difficult for Kenny to have hit it, but it's also difficult for Michael to have hit it. Most of Michael's range doesn't have a pair on this flop. Um so it's a good spot for Kenny to just call and see what Michael does on the turn. Um the six is obviously is going to be the best hand quite a lot of the time. I mean if you think you're like even against a strong hand like Ace King, Ace Jack, King Jack, which Michael actually has in this situation, uh suited aces all those hands, sixes is actually ahead, and Michael is basically hoping that Michael just shuts down and he gets to showdown and wins at this point in the hand, probably. So, as I said, Kenny does call, uh, which I think is pretty standard. Uh, the turn's an interesting card because the turn is the queen of diamonds, so the board now reads queen, ten, ten, queen, and there are two diamonds there. Michael at this point checks, and Kenny checks behind. What do you make of uh, Ruan's check there? D- is he forced to check even though he's open-ended? Is he just like, it? you're only going to get called when you're completely crushed by a bout? Like, I think there's a couple of good reasons for checking here. One of them is now the if you're behind to a to a to a house, obviously, if Kenny has a queen or a ten, your open ender is useless. So on the flop, he's semi bluffing because he's thinking if he hits a an ace or a nine for the straight, he's going to make the best hand. But now he th- those outs are very very tainted for the river. Um, he you know he could hit an ace and still be still be tossed against a, a boat. Um, so it's he can't really semi bluff anymore. In, in, in the same way that he could on the flop but also it's actually harder for for kenny to even have a hand now because you know there's two queens and two tens there so there's only four cards out there that, that make a boat with that in mind dara should should kenny now be turning a hand like pocket sixes which was obviously him getting kind of sticky on the flop should he now be treating it like it was a flout and now trying to take the hand away yeah i think there's certainly a strong argument to be made for that and i I suspect if this had been earlier in the tournament, Kenny might have taken that line. Um, but I think with ICM being such a big factor, he doesn't want to put more chips into the pot until he has a clearer idea of whether M- Michael actually has a strong hand or not. Um, because I think M- Michael possibly like would would if Michael has the queen or the ten, he could he could very well check the turn here, um, arguing yeah. th- thinking that the best way to get value from Ke- from Kenny's hand, given that Kenny can't really have a very strong hand, is to induce him to bluff. Um, so I can see why Kenny would decide maybe not to bluff this street. And obviously, just because you don't bluff the turn doesn't mean that you can't bluff the river. Um, so Kenny decided to check and basically see what Michael does in the river. I think ICM played definitely played a role in that. As we said, the turn goes check check, and then the river is a is a total break. It's a, the four of clubs, which really doesn't change anything unless one of the players happens to have pocket fours. And Ruan checks again, and now Kenny decides to bet. Obviously, feeling he's he knows he's bluffing because he's basically playing six high. Um, he can barely beat the board at this point. He's trying to fold out something like sevens, eights, or nines. I think he went for a pretty small sizing. Um, so I don't think he's trying to fold out like a very strong hand. But, you know, sevens, eights and nines have all been counterfeited as well, but are actually beating his hand. So, yeah, so. he benefits a lot if he can get those hands to fold. Um, so he, he, he bets, and I think it's a, it's a perfectly um, justifiable decision to try and get those hands to fold. 
Michael tanked for a while and eventually called, which caused a lot of consternation among some of the people I was watching it with at the time, given that he only has king high. But I think the key to this hand, I guess there's two key concepts. First, first of all is if Kenny actually had a boat, you know, if he has the queen of the ten, he probably bets the turn because he wants to keep building the pot um, and, 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 and get three bets for Michael at least rather than just check. So it's unlikely, apart from the fact that there's only four cards that make a boat, it's unlikely that um, uh, Kenny has the boat. If Kenny has ace high, um, which is the other hand he, he has just to worry about. Showdown, you he has the show, yeah, that's exactly it. Like, there's no point in betting that hand. Um, maybe to get a crying call from King High, but but Kenny would almost certainly check that hand, particularly with ICM being a factor. So that's the first thing that's yeah. to that's be said. Kenny is not really credibly repping the boat on the on the river, and King High actually has very good showdown because the the other hand that beats you Ace High probably doesn't bet. Um, yeah. and so much of Kenny's range is sort of uh, pairs that have been counterfeited uh, that it's a justifiable uh, call the other thing about the hand is that I think King Jack is a specific is a very good hand to call specifically because of blockers because if Kenny is saying I have a boat he's basically saying he has a, hand, a queen or a ten now with King Jack specifically you're blocking King Queen King Ten suited Jack 10 suited, Queen Jack, all those hands. Um, and Michael actually had the King of Hearts, and one of the 10s was a heart. So, you know, Kenny can't have King 10 of Hearts, uh, which would yeah. be one of the hands that he calls preflop. So I think because of the blockers, that, make, that makes it a, an easier call as well. Yeah, now I can almost hear our listeners leaning forward in their chairs. Uh, that's, a, that's a really juicy concept right there, Dara, that, that notion that people would look at King Jack and go, blockers, what blockers? You know, what are you blocking? But in reality, what you're doing is you're blocking the combinations of hands that would link with the Queen and the Ten, which, of course, King and Jack being right beside them, you know, people call with pseudo connectors makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and, and now in this situation, there's a lot fewer of those combinations possible. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I think it was a really good call by Michael in game. I, I think a lot of people would just fold without thinking there about the situation. Michael basically went back to the hand very carefully and thought, well, like how likely is it that, that Kenny has that hand he's trying to represent? Um, and you know, do I have a, a good hand which blocks hands the hands that he's trying to represent? Well, with millions on the line, Michael Ruan found an insanely big call there in that spot. And obviously that pot uh, helped to dent the chances of Kenny Heller, who he will be chatting to later on. Um, overall, fascinating stuff and, and really appreciate your analysis there, Dara. The Spacey FCB Hellert. Kenny, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi, Kenny. Uh, Kenny, you're coming off the back, right off the back, in fact, of a pretty successful scoop. I saw there only well, a, a few weeks ago, uh, you won uh, scoop 29, the high one for 148k, your biggest ever online score. I know that's probably not life-changing money for you these days, but still pretty sweet. It's, winning always feels great. Uh, if it's a small tournament or a big tournament... I, I like the game of poker in general and I have a big passion for it and I always give myself 100% and obviously winning a big scoop event is, 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 is very nice. I never won actually a, a big uh, event during a big online series, uh, so for me I was, was very happy and it was indeed my biggest online result. For my previous biggest online result we have to go back all the way to, to January 2009 when I won the Sunday warm-up for 
somewhere around 108,000. So yeah, I was very, very happy with it. Well, you also managed a, a triple crown recently as well. I, I remember you tweeting out there or maybe Facebook messaging out there that you had put in a serious grind for about maybe three or four weeks in London. Um, and it was your ambition to come out the other end of it with the triple crown. Uh, I, that was correct. Uh, there was a big promotion going on on uh, party poker at the time. They had a leaderboard promotion and I decided to try to go for the, for that leaderboard and so I played three weeks straight all day every day and during the course of, of uh, those three weeks I managed to win a triple crown so that was good as well and that's I think a little bit all of the hardware that pays off uh, that I've put in my game the last uh, yeah the last years and especially uh, after reaching last year's November uh, last year's final table uh, of the main event. I had three months in between. During those three months, I took some coaching and I learned a lot extra during those uh, during those times. And now, when the November, uh, when the final table was over, I actually had the time to put all that new knowledge into into practice, and I could immediately see on my results and like the triple crown, the the scoop win is all is all a big uh, uh, the coaching had a big influence in, my, in, my, in all of my current results uh, you mentioned 2009 there was your previous biggest um, online score you were obviously a very successful online grinder by 2009 but 2009 you also had um, a big live score I think uh, late November uh, you were 6th in the Dutch Masters for 86k obviously you were very successful online but that live score must have been a big one for you at the time uh, definitely, yeah. That was yeah. All of two thousand and nine was was. I remember that was a, my best year up until last year. Uh, I had a very good online year. Life was good as well, like you just said, making the final table of the Master Classics, and that gave me yeah, a big bankroll boost that whole year, and and a lot of confidence as well, basically to to keep on uh, to keep continue to play with the game and 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 to. It motivated me to put in, to keep putting effort in my game and, and try to do better. Uh, well, it's not like you were slacking off the other years. I just to, to quickly run through some of the results here: January 2011, uh, EPT Deauville sixth place for 150 grand. November of that same year, EPT Lutraki two side event wins in three days. That must have been pretty nice. And of course, before the big one, before the November 9 WSOP, the previous year, you came fifth in the Colossus. I think outlasting what. 23,000 but just not four more people to come fifth for 182k yeah that was insane as well um, it's still to, uh, up until today the, the biggest live tournament regarding a number of entries ever ever held and making the final table of that is, is quite insane actually and yeah obviously you don't start that tournament by saying oh I want to make the final table because it's such of a long shot but in the end there's nine seats at the final table that need to be filled, so you might as well be one of them. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I played in Lille, I think, shortly after that, and it, it, it was clear that the Belgian poker crowd were taking great pride in the fact. I don't know how many Belgians came up to me and pointed and said, that man made the final table of the Colossus. Yeah, it was, I remember, yeah, it was, in, was insane, actually, how, how I... Uh, yeah, how I got there and indeed from the Belgian community got a lot of support and, and, and of them as well and 
Uh, but overcoming yeah, 22, 23,000 entries, you need to win a decent amount of coin flips. Uh, I can guarantee <laughs> sure. that. Uh, and I remember watching that farm table. It was interesting that, like, given there were so many people in the field, there were still so many recognizable names, uh, including yourself. Uh, yes, the, yeah, the, the level of place was still uh, was still very very good in in, in general at that uh, at that final table. Yeah, that's sometimes how it how it all goes. I remember during that. Uh, the numbers there. There were, I think, six thousand players that played the World Series of Poker event for the first time ever during that event. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's sometimes during the last couple of tables how how the cards are being dealt basically decides who who's getting up at uh, at the final table, of course. And yeah, I was fortunate enough to to be one of them. And maybe after that you felt that that was as good as it was going to get for you at the World Series. But then obviously uh, your run in the main event last year—that's what. That basically brought you to a new level of sort of worldwide fame and recognition. Uh, you, you came sixth in the end for 1.46 million. Can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, like somehow that was, like you said, a, a big goal that I uh, making a World Series final table. That was something that I had on my list as things I ever want to achieve. Obviously, you cannot, yeah, you can't order these things, so you have to. Yeah, you have to do it yourself and and uh, and be fortunate enough to be there and like i had previous goals when i started my poker career which were like playing in a world series of poker event was was like back into when i started playing poker in in end of 2004 uh it was like one of my first dreams like ever play such an event and then uh, i think in 2008 i did play my first world series of poker event and then, yeah, you want to make a cash in the World Series of Poker, but then make a cash in the main event. And then, yeah, your next goal, okay, let's make a final table. And all of a sudden, it was the it was the Colossus, which was one of the biggest events. And then, okay, yeah, what's what's next? Well, yeah, like maybe winning a bracelet or making <laughs> the final table of the main event. And all of a sudden, next year, it was already there. Actually, in 2015, I already had a quite of a good run in the main event, finishing 123rd, which is quite deep but still yet so far away of course from the from the final table and I remember when I busted out uh, in 2015 I felt like oh, this might have been my unique chance ever to go that deep in a main event because you're already down to two percent of the field so you would say on average like one in 50 times you get there in, in, that you're playing it so yeah I don't think I'm gonna play the World Series main event 50 times ever although you never know this will actually this year be my 10th time that will be participating but that felt as a yeah as a unique opportunity for me that I I wouldn't say screwed because I, yeah was I was eliminated and don't regret any any decisions or anything but uh, I was was a little bit disappointed and then all of a sudden last year actually I didn't have a good summer up until the main event I uh, didn't have many results but then yeah all of a sudden that I ran good for seven days straight, and I made it to the final table, which was yeah, it was quite insane. It's it's for me. It, I think it's the highest ever that I that I can achieve in poker. I think if I would ever win a major tournament or even a bracelet, and if I would then ever would look back at my career, I think I would always value making the final table higher than than winning a major tournament. Maybe unless you're like would win like a prestigious event now that let's say a 10k six max or a millionaire maker or some event like that i would value it quite high as well but i 
don't think it would ever be as valued as high as, as the main event final table. It's it's more than a dream that that came true for me at that point. It's yeah, sure. It's, and um, we mentioned in your introduction that you are maybe the last ever or one of the last ever November Niners. There has obviously been a few changes with the WSOP this year. They've changed things around. They're going to present the show in a different way, structure the end game of the tournament in a different way. What do you think of that? Do you think that um, uh, sort of demonstrates that it didn't work as a concept? Do you think that it, it worked as a concept for that time, but we've moved into a different time now, maybe with the technology or the, the way streams and stuff are delivered? How do you feel about that? Yeah, obviously there are some... They thought well about making that decision and there are probably some marketing strategies behind behind it as well. Uh, for me as a player, I personally really enjoyed the time in between. Although I think at the time, I wouldn't have mind if we would kept on playing because I felt good. But I think it would be the same for every other player that made it to the final table because everybody's feeling great, of course, of making a final table and they're in the zone. Uh, but on the other hand, that those that those three months in between gave me the time to try to prepare myself as, as optimally as uh, as possible. Uh, I think for the viewer experience, it's definitely a, a good thing as well. I think that you don't have to wait at least three months to, to know the result of a tournament that, that started yeah, three months ago. On the other hand, uh, at the final table, there was a big atmosphere uh, going mm -hmm. on as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, you have time to yeah, to, to let or, or for your uh, fans and family to arrange a trip, which now actually is impossible because yeah, if you make the final table, it's hard for for people uh, to, to to travel to Vegas in two days and and arrange themselves with days off for work. So the atmosphere maybe at the final table will be a little bit uh, different, but I think as well that the level of play will be will be decent because everybody is still in the in the flow of the game more or less although there are two days in between but the dynamics will the, still the exist. dynamics will still yeah. be exist and yeah and those dynamics were completely different with in the november 9 era because people had so much time to prepare themselves to think well about what strategy they would have been uh doing they, they can think what the other have more time to think what the other mm. players of their strategy would be um like we might see uh, more, like I remember the the Philip Hilm uh, who went from chip leader to to busting Against out in yeah. and might which we never had seen a similar thing afterwards and during the November nine era. So we might see similar things coming back again uh, this uh, this year. Uh, yeah, I feel like tiredness might play more of a role now when people don't have as much time to to um, you know recover. Yeah, that can definitely be an issue, although they do have two days in between, but I, I can remember uh, or I can imagine that uh, during for those players that might have some uh, media obligations that they have to fulfill. So there still might be some tiredness and, and indeed it is it can be pretty exhausting. Speaking of things which can be exhausting as well, one of the big stories of the World Series last year was actually a guy who didn't even make the final table, William Kosuf, and I think you actually played with William quite a bit. <laughs> William was a very polarizing figure in that he, he made for great TV and I think a lot of Europeans kind of watch, just watching the TV coverage not having a sense of having played with him felt he was perhaps treated unfairly and it was like the Americans ganging up against him or whatever. A lot of my American friends found him like just genuinely really frustrating um, and some of the guys who played with him uh, also said that to me that uh, for example 
it wasn't so much the speechway that annoyed them, it was just how long he was taking in every decision. How did you feel about the whole thing? Uh, the same thing as you more or less are explaining right now. I, I don't care about speechway. I mean, players can tell me whatever they want. It's, it's one ear in and the other ear out. Uh, they can, I think, I've had I'm having 13 years of experience as a poker player, so I've seen, I've heard it all. It, it, it doesn't affect me, at least I think it doesn't affect me. So players can, can try to talk me in or out of the hand. I, I won't be bothered, I just try to focus on what's going on. But it's the, the pace of play that was, uh, yeah, a little bit annoying, let's say. Uh, <laughs> You're being kind. Uh, <laughs> extremes amount of time for, yeah, for even starting looking, yeah, for even just Start looking at your cards, and 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 every decision would take yeah, would take half a minute, a minute just for the yeah for even making an open raise. I mean, you, you're gonna raise or you're not gonna raise. Okay, you want to consider some factors, but it shouldn't take you that amount of time each and every single hand. And then, especially if you saw some of the time he took with the hands he had on on the on the live uh, on the live coverage, that were then then you actually saw what he did. There was. I remember a certain hand that were on the flop and there were two players all in and he sitting there with king high for, for nothing, no draws, <laughs> no redraws and he's still tanking and then then you're wondering why, I mean... Yeah, what's going on what, there? Yeah, yeah. What, why you, what you want to try to achieve basically by, by doing this. I know uh, you, you made very good use of the, the gap uh, between you know July and November 9, as you said, you, you went off and you got coaching from Fedor uh, in that time. First of all, why did you choose Fedor, and was there, what did you get out of that experience, and was there, like, did you look at other stuff like mental coaching or any other aspect? I did have a mental coach uh, as well. Uh, I reached, well, so I made a final table, so yeah, your goal is, I want to be prepared as good as possible, and then you're thinking, okay, who's a good player, then yeah, you're immediately thinking out about the best players in the game, and Obviously, Fedor Holt is uh, is one of them. If uh, I think he's quite, he's at the top uh, of, of, of your list. So I approached Fedor, and yeah, we came to some sort of agreement uh, for him to prepare me. Uh, we basically set up a team of coaches uh, around me, uh, together with Fedor, uh, all good players that are all that are world class players in in every aspect of the game, and yeah. We had several hours of coaching, but all of all of them, and it really was yeah, it was really nice for me because that knowledge I could not only use at the final table, but I could use it for my yeah, for my future. I can still use all that knowledge today. So for me, it was the best thing that could ever overcome to me, and I'm still very thankful to to the to these guys for uh, yeah for coaching me because my recent results that I had are definitely. Uh, Definitely that coaching had a big influence on, on my recent results. Yeah, it seemed like you, you certainly viewed it as uh, the opportunity of a lifetime, which of course it is when it comes, yeah. and you treated it as such, which I, I was really impressed by, because so many guys maybe just feel like, well, you know, my game has got me this far, my game can maybe get me over the line, whereas I think anybody who approaches it completely rationally has to see the opportunity that has presented itself and now decide, well, I do not want to ever look back later in my life and say, I could have done something different, I could have, you know, maybe I should have, you know, 
taking on a coach or something. It, it was so impressive how you prepared for that. Uh, I think the rigorousness, as you described, a team of eight coaches, that's incredible. One thing I have to ask you, though, because I, I remember thinking it was a bit of a, a mind game move, maybe, although maybe I've got this wrong, is that you did release that feed or you kept it secret for a while, but you released that feed or was your coach about three or four days before the final table. Was that to play mind games with the opposition who would suddenly think, holy shit, we're, we're, we're playing against the best guy in the world now as well? Uh, I think we only, yeah, was maybe only even like two days, uh, two days before uh, that. That we re- it was some sort of yeah mind game. Then to all of a sudden said, okay, like I love that by the way. I thought that was brilliant. We tried to kept it secret. Then as far as we know, n- nobody ever knew who my coach. And there was outside of my coaches, there was only I think a couple of people that knew who I was getting coaching from. Like even I had lots of had some swaps with different various players and even to those players I kept it a secret I said sorry guys brilliant in our interview with Neil Farrell which we had just a few weeks ago he said that Fedor aside from being the luckiest player in the world was also the best a pretty uh, rotten combination if you're playing against him having worked so closely with Fedor would you agree with that like is his preparation that good is his uh, someone said recently you know most poker players work off maybe a few shove charts and a a few reshove charts and they have some Fedor's got like 2000 charts He's just a very smart player, and yeah, he, he he knows the game quite well. And he, although he said he kind of retired, but leading up to the <laughs> last years, he, he he put a lot of effort in his in his uh, in his game, of course, and, and working with other world class players as well, just to try to get better as a group. And and you're learning things from another guy, and you then you can learn other things to to the same to the same people, and just trying to come to solutions for for all sorts of situations that might happen and and you try to then yeah apply all these all that new knowledge to to the game and then try to get more experience in all of these situations and just try to get better as a as a poker player and he and yeah he succeeded quite well in 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 doing that uh, I would say he certainly has and you mentioned how, looking specifically at Federer, how part, a large part of his rise uh, was down to the, peop- the other guys that he was working with and they were all improving as a group. And I think friendships are very important in poker. And uh, I believe Stephen Van Zettelhoff has been your best friend for a while. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Obviously, he was one of the guys that knew, uh, actually pretty much the only guy that knew that I had coaching from uh, Federer. I think it's, it's important to have people next to you indeed that... Uh, uh, where you can rely on, in, in especially in when it's going bad, where you can have a talk with, where where you can say, okay, where you don't have to be ashamed of, of telling mistakes that you made in, in poker or even in life in general, or, or somebody who, who can tell you literally the truth without insulting you, saying, okay, this is not good what you're doing here, this is, yeah, you have to do it differently, and just talk as as real men or I mean, under each other and telling each other the truth and some somebody having to rely on is 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 very important, especially I think in the in the poker world. It's great to have somebody that uh, I think it's fair to say. Darren and I are fairly blunt with each other as well when it comes we're, to we're, those. We're spots. very blunt, yeah. And it's re- it's refreshing to hear Kenny say that like uh, Stephen still 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 his best mate. Like I always felt that if I like made the November nine, I'd probably upgrade and move on to a better <laughs> level of friend. <laughs> um, oh dear. Well, I wouldn't be rude those better quality <laughs> friends, Darren. You've been slumming it for long enough. Um, finally, Kenny, you're obviously a well-regarded tournament director on top of everything else. Yeah. You've been the main man here at the Unibet Opens for years. 
Um, you've also taken on yourself uh, for I think probably maybe 10 years to compile that fabulous uh, Vegas schedule for the weeks of the WSOP. Yeah. A really thankless job, or, or hopefully at least a few people do thank you for it. Um, jobs like that really demonstrate you have a passion for the game. Um, can you imagine a day where you won't play poker? Hard to foresee. Like I say, I have a big passion for the game and a spreadsheet as well. It, it, it started basically something as I did for myself because I was, I think, somewhere in 2010 or something. I, I mean, you're trying to make up your shuttle and you're looking at all these shuttles and like from the World Series and back at the time it was like Caesars had a big series and the Venetian. You're trying to figure out your shuttle, but it, it's there's no real overview. So I was like, okay, let's just put it in one. <laughs> Yeah. spreadsheet and, and to have a better overview and then I just was for myself I just sent it to a couple of friends and then the year again I made it and I sent it again to some friends and they forwarded it to some other friends and that's basically how the ball got got rolling and I make it every year since but it's still the, the, the goal is just to make it for myself so that I personally have a good overview of everything was going on and I don't mind sharing it with other people but I do indeed have a big uh, big passion for the game uh, like now as well being a tournament director here it's, it's just because I, I mean I have I've had good results in the past so I've, I've, I mean I could be 100% of a professional poker player as well but I don't want to be that I want to have do something different as well like being 100% a professional poker player I think it's mentally too requires too much effort so I'm now I'm finding the perfect balance of being a tournament director, which actually I'll have I'm doing since 2009. So and I really like doing the job, and, and I don't mind if at which side of the table I'm at, if I'm there as a player or if I'm working on the floor. I, I just have a big passion for the game in general, and yeah, when I started taking poker more seriously in in 2008. Uh, I was thinking if I can do this for five more years, it would be great. But now we're nine years later, and I'm still sitting here, so it's hard to see where, yeah, where my career ever will end. At the moment, I'm still not not tired of poker, I would say. But probably there will be one day when I where I say, well, I've had enough of at least playing poker on a high level, I, where I cannot. Uh, put the effort in anymore where I don't have the mental strength to study hours and hours per week and work on my game. I definitely will still continue to play poker at that time but probably on a on a lower level. I have been thinking about some challenges already that I could do for example when once I ever uh, stop playing poker and one of them would be to collect as many hand and mouth flags as possible, different hand and mouth flags as possible so then I could compete in every other tournament in the world no matter what the buy-in is as long as I've <laughs> having a flag and I think it, that would be once I retire from professional level would be actually cool so just travel for one year and still play the game that I like um, um, doesn't have to be on a high level if it's a, it's a hundred pounds competition somewhere or it's a, a 1000 world series of poker event or even a main event just yeah to just travel a bit and have a bit of fun well, Kenny, I really like the sound of that plan um, and in all aspects of your poker. And I want to thank you very much on behalf of Darren yeah, yeah. and I. Thank you, very thank you much. so yeah, much for joining us today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Playing us out tonight is a beautiful track by an indie band who are no strangers to the chip race. Back in season one, Irish poker player and musician Barry Malarkey kindly allowed us to play out an episode with his band hit single Dream On. With yet another fantastic track, this is Youth Mass and On A Wave.
and of course Kenny. I know we promised you Mormon this week, but we are hopeful to nab him for a chat before next week's episode, which will also feature two-time UKIPT Player of the Season, reigning Unibet Poker Deep Stack Open Malta Champion and former newsman of this show, Dara Davey. Until then, from Dara Ian and myself, good night. (laughs) 